probably thought of some of the ladies in the old um, television series like uh, Harriet Nelson, June Lockhart, Barbara Billingsley, some of you like, who in the world are they? All right, Ozzie and Harriet, Father Knows Best, Leave it to Beaver. Anybody, you remember some of those? Now the kids are like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. If you're under 30, I guess that you'd have to find, uh, was it TV Land? Probably still has them on, that's about it. They presented a, a stereotype of mom, which actually was, was fairly common. Mom was busy in the kitchen getting family supper ready, or she was making sure the house was clean and orderly, maybe doing crafts projects, uh, planting flowers around the house, trying to make it a beautiful home. Uh, she directed the care of her children, everything from ensuring that they got their homework done to making sure their ears were clean before they, she let them out of the house. Uh, she would uh, tend to their physical and emotional wounds. The, the kiss on the forehead or on the knee when it got scraped was probably as much part of the healing process as the Bactine and Band-Aids. She was involved with community affairs, Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, PTA, whatever it was that her children were involved in, she would be involved in as well. Plus, often we'd find that moms were involved with uh, civic clubs. They wanted to help build a better community. I think of my own mom telling my younger brother and I to behave. My older brother behaved. It was the younger two. Maybe you've noticed that in your family. The younger two usually tend to be the problem? No? Yes? In some families, okay. Another family, maybe it is the older one in some families. The siblings can fight that one out, okay? But she would tell us to behave while she's preparing her lesson for her junior class of girls. You know, mom was always there. Maybe that brings to mind, because there's still a lot of ladies, I think, around that are the same way. She was the one that was always there, and that's true whether you wanted her there or not, because she was ready to discipline you when you needed it. She was also ready to listen, to comfort, say, I love you. Those are the kinds of moms that stand fondly in our memory or that we desire. Sadly, I don't think that is necessarily the kind of thought that occurs in a lot of people in America anymore, because there's a lot of competing models for what a mother is. More than a third of children in America are born to single women now. In some communities, that's two-thirds are born to single women. In addition, high divorce rates add to this. The result is over half of the children in America will spend part of their lives in a single-parent home. That's difficult. That of necessity means that mom's role is going to be changed because she had to take on dad's role as well with the, all the time constraints. And the result is a lot less attention to the child than might otherwise be there, sometimes even completely neglected. Single parenting may be a reality, even a necessity for some, but it certainly is not the ideal or good in many cases. Another factor occurring in America is a moral decline, and of course that a has a direct relationship to the huge number of single-parent families, but more detrimental to children than a single-parent household is the moral character of mom. There are many moms that are single, though that is through no desire of their own, but by their very moral character, they overcome the handicap, and they are a great blessing to their children. Through great self-sacrifice, such mothers model maturity, godliness, and the result, her children, when they are grown, rise up, and they call her blessed. And we thank the Lord for that. However, the moral decline in America has resulted in a lot of mothers 
who are less sacrificial. In fact, I would be more accurate to say just plain selfish. They ridicule their children instead of encouraging them. They treat their children with contempt and sarcasm instead of nurture and love. They view their children as if they existed for their personal benefit rather than seeing themselves in the role of caring for those children by their own sacrifice and providing, protecting, training, and loving. Are we aware of this? Of course we're aware of this. We see it around us every day. In any public atmosphere, you can hear parents treat their children in such manners. Now, we find there are other mothers. They go to the opposite extreme, and they cater to the child's every whim. While that may seem a little more loving and the outwardly selfish mom, at the heart, it's still selfish, because all it's really doing is seeking to avoid the conflicts that are a natural part of child-rearing. If you're not aware of that, it is a natural part of child-rearing. If you're not a mom yet, I hate to break that news to you, but it is. Okay? Why? Because when that child is born, you bring a sinner into your household, right? And your job is to help train that sinner to be respectable and godly. That's no easy task. But there are a lot of moms who do do that. But unfortunately, there are many now that do not. Whether that mother is trying to cater to the child to avoid these conflicts, it could be a fear We are told uh, by psychologists, if you don't uh, give the child what he wants, you'll damage him. That's not true, but that's what we're told. Some mothers are striving to somehow win their child's love by catering to them. Some are simply doing them because, well, that's what the rest of society is doing. No matter what the reason, it's still not right or good. Because the goal of parenting is to train that next generation to become responsible and respectable adults. That's what you're there for. That is hopefully what your parents did. That's what we're striving to do is train up the next generation. The sad reality is that those who cater to children trying to win their affection only end up reaping their disdain. Parenting practices based on secular psychological models have become dominant in our society, and an increasing number of children, because of that, as they enter adulthood, we find are self-centered and irresponsible adults, who flounder in their work and relationships. By contrast, when we follow the biblical model, we find the principles there of training your children into mature adults. And when you do so, you also find you gain their respect and love. It's there, because they understand what life is about. Now, modern society minimizes the value of those women who are at home with their children. They say, you're just a mere housewife. Oh, boy, the lectures you could give on what that means. A mere housewife? Really? How mere is this? Oh, boy, so many different hats that moms wear. There's nothing mere about it. Our society ends up placing pressure on women to be of something of value to society. Therefore, somehow you must have a career. Being at home, they don't value I don't watch very much TV, but I would hazard a guess that there are very few moms on the drama or sitcoms that are stay-at-home moms that are portrayed in a good light. And the few that might be portrayed in a positive light probably have some sort of career that's prominent within the storyline because they want to make sure that this woman has some value. Have you considered how modern society has helped the career woman cope with her children? All sorts of things are out there now that didn't exist 100 years ago. Mom can be a wizard in the kitchen. 
She can provide a gourmet meal for her family because she has a programmable microwave to heat up her wide selection of frozen foods. Modern mom can be involved in her children's development by listening intently to the reports given to her by the preschool teacher. Modern mom can provide the child with what society says that they now need the most. Lots of programs for kids, fad toys, snack foods, freedom of expression, and the child psychologist. These aren't good, are they? Now, this is not to make fun or downplay the tough job that those of you who are single moms have. Understand, you have my respect. It is simply to point out that American society has lost its way with tragic consequences. The vast majority of Americans do not set their priorities by what God's word says, but rather either by what they themselves desire because they're selfish or what they're pressured to fulfill because that's what everybody else is doing. Even the basic question of what a mother is has become confusing. What does that mean? One of the things I want to do today is look at some scriptures and remind ourselves the role and responsibilities that God has entrusted to mothers so they can know what they're supposed to be and take a confidence in that and not be swayed away from that into things that are detrimental to her and to her children. Let me assure you from the very beginning that the idea promoted in our society that somehow you have to be superwoman is wrong. It's dead wrong. You do not have to be superwoman. God never intended that. He wants you to be a godly woman. What is the impact of a mom? James Dobson once made a humorous observation. He said, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Now, amen? I hope not. I hope it's more if mom is happy, everybody's happy. Well, that's a negative standpoint, but it is simply to illustrate the point. Moms, you have a big influence on your family. You make an impact. What you do, how you do it, is going to have a major influence on your family and upon society for either good or bad. Comparison between the top problems of schools in 1940 and current lists illustrates this. The Fullerton Police Department, California Department of Education, reported that in 1940, the top problems with school-age kids were, you think you can hazard a guess, how about talking, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, getting out of line, wearing improper clothing, and not putting paper in the trash can. Let me comment about this wearing improper clothing. What that meant was is you did not have your T-shirt tucked in. Even in... The, uh, the late 60s, my uh, shop teachers would not let you in class if your shirt tail was out. Can you imagine that? What a terrible man. Wouldn't let me into class because my shirt tail was out. I learned how to tuck it in. He was very good on that. What do you think the top problems are now? Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assault. What happened? What has happened? Many things have changed in the last 70 years. Two major societal changes are the dissolution of the family and working mothers. Before World War II, there were very few moms as a percentage of the population that worked outside the home. 
it was necessary during the war that everyone possible contributed to the war effort, and that meant a lot of moms went to work. But after the war, a lot of them stayed in the workforce. Something had changed. She liked the independence that came from having her own career and having her own money. Society changed to feed that independence and also to manufacture all sorts of goods that can consume that extra income. This, in turn, placed new pressures on marriages, and many of them could not sustain it, and the divorce rates began to rise. The sexual and social welfare revolutions of the 1960s are major factors in the increasing pace of family dissolution, or maybe I should more accurately state the enabling of the formation of families without fathers. The sexual revolution steadily tore down the social mores of society. Prior to this time, society recognized unmarried sexually active teens as fornicators. They would call them that. And it gave them very strong disapproval. doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just meant that society did not approve it. Even in the 1970s, when I was in high school, a girl who was uh, loose, who was sexually active, was considered a slut. And she was not welcome into your circle of friends. The pressure is now opposite on many high school campuses today. I saw a report some years ago dealing with surveys of teens, and it found that teenagers were apt to lie about their sexual activity and say that they were sexually active because they're the peer pressure to say that you were. Exactly opposite. The pressure is now that if you're a virgin, you're considered out of step with society and that something is wrong with you. The result of this has been a dramatic increase since the mid-20th century in the rate of unmarried teen pregnancies. The social welfare programs that arose during the Great Society, pushed in the 1960s, and then those programs that followed it, compounded this problem of teen pregnancies and single mother families. Prior to this, when a single woman found herself pregnant, there was a harsh reality to deal with. What do you do with this child? I'm having a baby. How do I take care of it? I don't have the resources. Very few women would have had the financial ability to keep the child for herself. Plus, there was a very strong social stigma against it. The result was that most women would either marry the father or she would give the baby up for adoption. Welfare payments to single mothers allowed her to have financial independence. She now was able to keep that child, remain single, even if she would be poor. Financial incentives were added. The more children she'd have, the more finances she would get. More children. If she married, she would lose those benefits, so remain single. With the change of the abortion laws in 1973, even those who were conservative were sucked in supporting this irresponsibility because of a fear of abortion. What can we do to help prevent that? The sexual and social welfare revolutions have had an even worse effect on men because it removed from them their responsibilities. They could now sow their wild oats with few or no serious immediate consequences to them personally. This encourages them, and it continues on to this day, to remain immature, irresponsible, and sinful in their behavior and attitudes. Now, that doesn't mean they get away with it. Eventually, they will reap the consequences of their actions, though it may be too late for that to result in any positive change that would benefit their children. Galatians 6, 6 and 7, it gives a very stern warning. 
Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. You don't mock God. The consequences will come. Well, what has been the impact of all this on children? Well, obviously very negative, but in two ways. First, there's a negative impact that occurs when mom is in the workforce instead of at home. Second, there is the negative impact of irresponsible moms who model their their sins to their children. In both cases, the result is detrimental to children who will grow up to be responsible adults. If mom is working, a question has to be asked. Who's watching the children? Who is the one that is instilling in those children their code of moral behavior and understanding. When a preschooler learns more from Sesame Street than his mother, there's a problem. When a child spends more time in front of the TV than in an interaction with mom and activities directed by mom, there's a problem. When that child is now confused about who mama is, there's a real problem. When an adolescent has bought into the lies common to the peer group and is more concerned about pleasing them than pleasing the parents or God, there is a severe problem from which there may not be any recovery except the direct intervention of God. Do you see how these things tie together? Now again, please, this is not to bash those of you who are single moms. In fact, those of you who are in that position live in this struggle from day to day because you desire to be the influence upon your children. You know the self-sacrifice that must accompany being able to do that. And by God's grace and His mercy, by that sacrifice, through His help, you can do so. And many of you have. You give up many of the activities, the things that you would like because your priorities are children and your, their welfare. You willingly spend your time and your finances for their benefit. You are the ones that give the strongest warning about the hardships of single parenting. But a large portion of single moms are not so dedicated as you, and their children suffer the consequences of the neglect. Now, while in theory it is good for an irresponsible mom to remain at home and care for her children instead of being in the workforce, the tragic reality is unless she learns the lessons and becomes responsible, she is going to train her children to be like herself. Since the father is also irresponsible, the model the child gets is irresponsibility. Is it any wonder, then, that we now have multiple generations of family that have grown up in welfare? Who's the responsible ones? Where is it being taught? What happened to parents sacrificing themselves so their children can stand on their shoulders and improve their living conditions? See, most parents desire that for their children. I hope all three of my sons go way beyond me in every respect. Now, for one thing, I'll be honest, that feeds my pride. Because if they're doing better than me, I put my arm around them and say, that's my son, okay? And I'd be happy to do that. Does a mom have an impact on her children? Yes. And through her impact on her children, she has an impact on the rest of society. We also see this in the pages of Scripture, both positive and negative. Over in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, or 2 Timothy 1, rather, verse 5, Paul makes a comment 
dealing with uh, Timothy's heritage. He says this, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. 2 Timothy 1.5. It's interesting. The impact of these two mothers is recorded forever in the pages of Scripture. There was a reason for Timothy to be the way that he was, to be as useful in the kingdom of God as he was. Now, Timothy was Paul's, um, one of the many young men that went with Paul, was trained in ministry, and then served alongside Paul, uh, often being the apostle's ambassador. What we find about Timothy is his father was a Greek, his mother was a godly Jewish lady who had been trained by her mother in the ways of the Lord. So Lois trained and instilled godly values into Eunice, who in turn instilled those into Timothy, who in turn went out and served the Lord in a very meaningful and impactful way in the ancient world. Now, Timothy is a positive example of an impact of a mother on her child, and in this case, a grandmother through the mother on a child. But there are also some negative ones. J. Vernon McGee, in his studies of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, pointed out something interesting, and that is, as you follow through carefully the, the line of kings, the mother of each one is mentioned by name. Now, in some cases, that's to honor the mother. She did a great job, and sometimes it's not. It's to lay the foundation of the blame right where it belonged. Mom had the greatest influence on those kings who were being raised. The king was too busy doing other things. Besides, most of those kings at that time had multiple wives, and he may not have been able to count how many kids he had, or at least name them. Let me give you some examples from this. 1 Kings 14, verse 31 We have a simple comment here, but it's very telling. It says of Rehoboam, that is the son of Solomon, it says, and his mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonitess. The Ammonites were one of the pagan nations that bordered Israel. 1 Kings 11 tells us that Solomon's marriages to these different pagan women was a major factor in turning him away from following the Lord properly. 1 Kings 11.5 records that Solomon went after Milcom, the detestable idols of the Ammonites. They, they sucked him into idolatry. Rehoboam was raised by a pagan mother, so it's no wonder that he ended up rejecting the things of the Lord and causing a split in, between the ten tribes that went north to form Israel and the tribe of Judah. Now the next example, to kind of follow a little carefully here, It's in 1 Kings 15. Verses 1 and 2 states this. Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ma'achah, the daughter of Abishalom. Okay, so we got the name of the mom, identified precisely by knowing who the dad was. 1 Kings 15, 8 through 10 records the next generation. It says, Abijam slept with his fathers. Asa, his son, became king, and his mother's name was, now this is strange, Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. Both passages list Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom, as the mother of both men. In other words, Abijam had an incestuous relationship with his mother, the result being that Asa's mother 
was also his grandmother. Is it any wonder then that Abijam was one of the most wicked kings in the lines of Judah? The point is that a mother does greatly impact her children for good or evil. So much so the child's success or failure is in part due to his mother's influence. Now that's not to say that a child raised well will not follow their sin and reject you, reject your training and go their own way. It's also not to say that God in his graciousness cannot take someone raised by an ungodly mother and bring from that someone good. Some of you, that's your own testimony. Your mother was not a good person. They were wicked. And God's mercy on you is pulling you out from that. Interesting enough, Asa was a good king. He rejected his evil mother's influence and was one of the righteous kings in the lines of Judah. Proverbs 1.8 instructs us, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. Just make sure that the law that you're following is that of God. We can conclude saying this, a mother is probably the single greatest influence on her child, and through her impact on that child, she affects the rest of society. If a mother fails in doing her part in rearing her children, then she has failed regardless of anything else she may accomplish in life. That is her main goal, her main role. Now, that being true, we need to answer a few questions. What does the Bible teach that a mother is supposed to be? What is a mother? What is the criteria by which you can even distinguish the ungodly mother and the godly mother? I want to give you four areas so that you can evaluate yourself properly and set your sights on how you can be what God wants you to be. The first criteria is your own walk with the Lord. Now, that's not surprising, is it? If you're going to be a godly mother, you've got to be godly to first place, right? Don't ever be fooled into thinking that anything in your role as a parent is more important than this relationship that you have with your Creator. If you're struggling in that area, then it's impossible for any other area of your life to do well except sinful ones. In fact, if you're doing poorly with your walk with God, your sinful areas are going to do very well much to your detriment and that of your children. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 37, He who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a pretty strong statement. But I can guarantee you, the more you love Christ, the more you're going to love your children. A personal relationship with God is simply what being a Christian is all about. Jesus died in order to do what? To solve our sin problem so we can be in a relationship with God. We can be reconciled with Him and no longer under His condemnation. We can now walk with Him and glorify Him. That's our goal. We love God for a simple reason. He first loved us. And we respond to that. David described his desire for God as a deer thirsting for water, so his heart desired for God. Read Psalm 119 sometime and get an idea of David's great love for God and even of his word because it reflected God and gave him understanding of God. And so he wanted it. Now, Diane may be a little embarrassed by this, but I can always tell if she's had her time with the Lord. Yes, I can. That's okay. She can tell the same thing about me, right? Because what's the reality? 
if I don't have my time with the Lord or she doesn't have hers, what's the rest of our day going to be like? Yeah, you've lived that too, huh? We're not as joyful. We tend to be more distant. We tend to be more emotional, irritable. We're harder to talk to. We, uh, it seems like the problems of the day just weigh heavier upon us. But when you instead spend that time making sure I'm right with the Lord, I've been reading His Word, I'm thinking in terms of how He wants me to think, then there is less burden by the cares of this life. There is more joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Life is more enjoyable and exciting. And that goes for any of us, doesn't it? We can tell what the walk with the Lord is like by our own countenance. Now, mothers know how hard it is to get any time alone when there is a little one around or multiple little ones. Yes, Chris, I can see that. (laughs) She's like, yes. It's hard to get that time, right? Missy would agree with you with a multiple number of little ones, okay? This is simply reality. Personal time for mom doesn't get easier as they get older either. Why? Because then you're carting them all over the place, and when you got multiples, you're doing both. So it's even harder. So what do you have to do? You have to make sure that your devotional life of the Lord is a priority. You've got to put it up there really high. Now, maybe you can take it when the little tyke is asleep or occupied with independent activity, but there's always a list of things you need to accomplish. If you don't make this a priority, it won't happen. If the Lord is your priority, then understand there are consequences. Other things become of less importance, right? Some things may not get accomplished, right? That means that the husband has to cooperate and encourage her in the proper priorities. Maybe the house is not as tidy as it might be otherwise. Is that acceptable? I hope so. Maybe uh, the dinner is not quite as fancy. It's a little simpler because mom took the time to have spend with the Lord rather than making sure she spent three hours in the kitchen making super fantastic things for you. Is that okay? I hope so. Maybe it takes a little longer to get the household projects done. I hope that's okay too. How do any of those things compare with communion with the creator of the universe? or the, the peace that is in a home where both parents are walking with God. You see, Mary understood this. Remember Mary and Martha? Jesus commended her because Mary chose the better part rather than the distraction with all the housework. Jesus really wasn't that concerned if the house was dusty. He was concerned for the heart and the soul of the ladies. Men, you have to make sure that you're encouraging that. Take up more responsibilities yourself. Make sure she can take that time. A couple of quick practical suggestions just to help keep this priority in order. First, be proactive. Actually schedule it into your time of your daily routine. If you leave it to, uh, well, when I get a chance, you'll never have a chance. There will always be something else. So schedule it in. Make it part of your normal routine. That's the first suggestion. Second, this is a very practical one, uh, use a phone answering machine. Okay? It's okay to use a phone answering machine. If you need permission, I give you permission. If you need it from somebody else, Diane will give you permission. We'll find somebody to give you permission. You can use a phone answering machine so that your priorities are kept. 
you can always call back when you're done with that thing that you need to get done. Certainly your quiet time with the Lord is one of them. A third one, I don't have it up here on the list, but is uh, learn to discern between good, better, and best. There are always a thousand good things you can do. That doesn't mean you should do them. Try to choose that which is best for your family, best for you, best for your own walk with the Lord, and make sure that becomes your priority. Otherwise, the time pressures of life just make it completely hectic. And you'll be entrapped in doing many good things, but not the better or best thing. So are you busy with the things of God that are, he says are important, or are you bogged down with the temporal things that 1 Corinthians 3 says are going to burn up anyways? The first priority of a godly mother is that time with God. Make sure it's a strong relationship. Number two, her relationship with her husband. Now, this is a priority that is often neglected in the busyness of parenting. We've all been there at times. But sometimes the neglect of the marriage relationship doesn't really have its full impact until years later. Parents who neglect each other but stick in the marriage for the sake of the children often find that after the children are grown and out of the house, they don't have any relationship. That's one reason why there is a bump in the divorce rate after 25, 30, 35 years. The kids are now gone and the two people are looking at each other and they don't know each other. They've developed independent lives. Those who are more selfish do not make it even to that far because they don't stick it out for the sake of the kids. Now, divorce statistics themselves are still unsettling, very unsettling, but they no longer tell the whole picture because a lot of couples never bother to get married. And so there is no divorce statistic even to note the tragedy of it. We must make sure that we are following the biblical priorities within the family unit, and the priority in marriage is the relationship of mom and dad with each other, then the kids. Are the children important? Of course they're important. And yes, there's much sacrifice that is made for their benefit. That's normal. That's part of being a family. But the husband and wife were a family before the kids arrived. You were a family when you said, I do. And when those kids grow up and they move out and you're there alone again, guess what? You're still a family, just the two of you. Why do I say that? Well, it's because of what the Bible teaches. You are a family. For Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul describes marriage as a picture of the church. The love of a husband for his wife, her response back of respect, is to reflect the relationship that our Lord has with his church. Now, Paul will talk about the children in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, but they're outside of the analogy of the Christ and the church. Where's the priority? It's in the husband-wife relationship. Second, there are a whole lot of very specific commands concerning marriage, and children are not an excuse to disobey those biblical commands concerning the marriage. For example, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 16, deals with a lot of things in a husband-wife relationship. One of the things it commands there is for each them to fulfill their duty to one another. Ephesians 5, 22-23, commands the husband to love his wife and commands the wife to respect her husband. That's irregardless of kids. Titus 2, 3, and 4 commands older women to teach the younger women how to be good wives who love and submit to their husbands, as well as be good mothers and loving their children and keepers at home. 1 Peter 3, 1-7 commands wives to win their husbands by their chaste and respectful behavior. At the same time, husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, and give them honor. Motherhood in no way negates 
God's commands to be a godly wife first. Third, if your marriage fails because you neglected it, then understand you've also failed your children. You have presented to them a low view of marriage. In essence, you teach them that marriage, its elements that make it up, are not important. You teach them a wrong view of life. Mothers, be very careful here. It's very easy to get caught up in the busyness of taking care of the children that you forget about your husband. You neglect him. He's sort of on the side. Make sure he knows he's still important to you. Fulfill that role as a godly wife. You cannot be a better mother than you are a wife. Husbands, this also goes for you. Make sure that your wife is going to be protected in this area. Provide in a way to spend time with her alone without the children. It's good for them. Make sure you can get her out of mommy role and back into wife role and let her know how important it is to you that she is your bride. I always like it when Jim Pagonis refers to his wife as my bride. They've been married 28, 29 years or more, something like that, getting 30. Joan is still his bride. What a wonderful way to describe it. That is the importance of the relationship. Dad, you can't be a better dad than you are a husband. So parents, make sure you remember your marriage. Provide for it. Third, your behavior before others. Now, I have three reasons I've placed this third in the criteria in evaluating a godly mother. First, your behavior before others is going to reveal the nature of your relationship. First and foremost, with the Lord. Jesus said if we loved him, we'd keep his commandments, John 14, 21. And one of those commandments, John, uh, Matthew 5, 16, is to let our light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Another is that we're to love one another as Christ has loved us because people will know we are Christians by our love for one another. All right, so how we're interacting with others is a reflection of a relationship with God. Second, your behavior is going to reveal your relationship with your husband as well. Do you give him the respect Scripture commands you to give him, or do you complain about all of his bad qualities to your girlfriends? Okay? It reveals something. Third, the greatest lessons you're going to teach your children are the ones that are being modeled in front of them. It's what you do that they are watching and learning, not what you say. You cannot get away with the idea of telling your children, do this, when you're doing something the opposite. They see right through that very quickly, and they know it's hypocrisy. Teaching is not information content. The fact that a student can repeat a lot of information back says nothing about whether they've learned. And I don't care if they have a PhD. That doesn't tell you if they actually know the subject. In the Old Testament, teaching occurred by example with explanation. A child was not considered to have learned the lesson until they could do it themselves. Information is only part of the equation. It has to be carried out in practice. Jesus taught his disciples by what method? By example. Yes, there was lecture. There's the Sermon on the Mount. But it was his example all the way through that they learned from of this is how we are to act before God. This is what it means to walk with God. Paul taught those he ministered by his example. How did Timothy learn to do ministry? By being with Paul all the time. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Follow my example. 
Probably one of the most sobering verses concerning teaching is Luke 6.40. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. They're going to model themselves after you. So what model are you showing them? What are they learning from you about walking with the Lord, about how marriage works, and how to treat other people? You're giving them that example. Fourth is your commitment to your children. Now, in times past, and still, I think, among among many moms, this is an assumed given, for it's normal for moms to care about their children and be sacrificial towards them. I think that's fairly normal. But the warning about getting between a a baron or cubs, you've heard that one, never get do that, can apply very much to getting a mom and her children. Don't do that. Okay, it could be dangerous because a mom usually cares about her kids. However, our society has changed and it doesn't have the strong influence even on those who attend church. First of all, society does not value a child as it once did, but a godly mother will be self-sacrificial for her children. I find it strange that some of the ways we would describe a woman who is carrying a child has We don't say it the same way. We used to say, she's with child. That's why we had you stand up, okay? Your child is under one. But your child is there, right? Now we just say she's pregnant with a fetus. What's a fetus? Well, it's just a French word for baby. Shh, don't let them know that. They might find out that they're, they're saying more about that child than they want to. Society, our society, pressures us concerning career, finances, social standing, personal convenience. They've all come up to such a high point that this first and most basic commitment to a child, the preservation of his or her life, has been greatly diminished and even absent with a lot of people. I find it utterly tragic that even Christian women have been deceived by these things, by this mindset, and they also end up in abortion clinics. This is utter tragedy. A godly mother is committed to carrying that baby to term. And that's despite all the personal inconveniences. And who am I to tell you about them all? Only an observer. The things that I've observed in Diane as she carried R3, morning sickness, heartburn, indigestion, that uncomfortable bigness in the last couple months as you waddle about, with the last one being on bed rest for months at a time, having her back out, having to crawl around. And then you get to have labor and delivery. (laughs) Then after the birth, the godly mother continues that kind of commitment. There's not only the feeding of the infant in the middle of the night, but there's the multiple sacrifices just part of raising that child. Stories of mothers sacrificing for her children abound. They range from everything from those who are going without food herself or her children going to have something. The legacy of my grandmother, my father's side, is she learned to love chicken necks. In fact, she got to where she, yeah, she preferred them. She had 10 kids. There wasn't much of a chicken left by the time she got through feeding them, and she ate the neck, and she learned to like it. She also learned to like chitlins. I never could figure out how she'd get either one down, but she did because she loved her kids. Mother sacrifice her own dreams simply so the child can have something else. You're not going to have that dream house or the, the fancy car or anything else because you want your children to have a better education. 
How many mothers have laid down their own life to protect the life of their child? Those stories abound. The godly mother, the godly woman, the godly person will give of themselves sacrificially because they're following what Scripture commands us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, and humbly considering others is more important than ourselves. And so we sacrifice. The godly mother resists this pressure of the world to conform it to its image, and instead she keeps her priorities in the proper biblical order. She's desiring to please God first and foremost. She values her walk with God, her husband, and her children more than what the world offers. One lady that sticks out in my mind, even after many years, as an example of this, was a lady that Diane and I knew in California named Margot Wilson. Now, Paul and Margot did not have much according to the values that the world would say is important. And a large part of that was Margot stayed home in order to watch and raise her three daughters. And as she had put it, she says, someone needs to be home for emergencies. She was the first person we'd usually call if anything needed to be done with somebody in the church. She was there and available, and she was, did that purposely. I'm sure there are those that look down on that family because they raised those three daughters in a two-bedroom home. The oldest one, Kirsten, uh, her bedroom was the back porch. It was only just wide enough for her bed, and that's where she slept. Strange enough, this family was the first to volunteer constantly for hospitality. They would host anybody, whether it's for meals or having them stay in their house. They would leave their bedroom and sleep on the couch so their guests could have their bedroom. They didn't have much according to the riches of this world as the world would define it, but they were rich in all the things that were actually important. They raised three daughters in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they set before them an example of love and sacrifice for others. I've lost track of exactly what's going on with the younger two daughters. Uh, one, I think, was in Colorado. The other one was in Chicago. But we do keep up with the oldest one, Kirsten. She lives with her husband and children as a missionary to tribal people in northern India. They travel with them. That's her life. She learned it from her mother. Now, I realize that economic conditions are such that it seems like, in some cases, there's no choice for mothers but to go to work. For single moms, there is no choice. Circumstances have always been individual. Sometimes they can be uh, fairly harsh. But even so, I want to challenge you about something. Give very serious consideration for the real reason for going to work and not being with the kids. Is it an actual necessity, or is it the result of desire for the things of this world? Only you can evaluate that. Make sure that if it does have to be done, that the negative impact on the children is as minimal as possible. That means greater self-sacrifice on your own part. Remember as well... When you consider the alternative, Matthew 6.33, the Lord's promise is to provide what we need if we put first his kingdom and his righteousness. It won't be what you want. It won't be what other people have, necessarily. It will be what you need, and you and your children, your family, and society will be blessed for it. To all, I leave this final challenge. Make sure your priorities match those that God has given your own walk with the Lord, your relationship with your spouse, your behavior for others, your sacrificial commitment to your children. I believe as you do this, you are going to be found to be a godly mother whose children will rise up 
and call you blessed. Father, thank you 